Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Police Project podcast series. Uh, this is Francesca Recchia and today we are with uh, uh, Dr. Amar Alijan, uh, who is a Pakistani historian with uh, a PhD from Cambridge University. Uh, he is also a political activist and until recently was um, a lecturer in political science at the Foreman uh, Christian College in Lahore until recently because uh, his contract has been uh, terminated uh, a few days ago. Amar, thank you very much for being with us. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, let's start with uh, with your experience. Uh, your last year and a half has been quite eventful. You were arrested in February 2019. Then there is a pending sedition case uh, against you. And then uh, you were recently fired uh, on the ground of being a national security threat. What does make your work so dangerous? Well, I'd like to believe I'm not very dangerous. Uh, <laughs> but there's a weird contradiction appearing in Pakistan. Those who subvert the Constitution, those who undermine its basic fabric, its values, its laws, they are being seen as the protectors of national sovereignty. So all the rights enshrined in the Constitution can be bracketed for this mythical concept of the nation. On the other hand, those who protect the constitutional architecture of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of dissent, those who take that document that binds us all together seriously, they are seen as threats to the nation state. So I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange reversal that those who believe in the constitution are being seen as seditious. So the constitution itself has become a subversive document uh, in Pakistan. And what we've done for the past uh, two, three years is simply insist that the Constitution matters. We insist that this document is the binding force uh, among the people of, of our country. And those who undermine it are the ones who are undermining the bond that connects people to each other and to the state. Um, and I think that uh, if, if the situation doesn't change, then more and more people who speak up for uh, constitutionally guaranteed rights will be declared traitors. Mind you, uh, in Pakistan, we have a rich history of, of declaring political opponents traitors. The mother of the nation, the, the sister of uh, the founding father, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, was declared a traitor in the 1960s when she dared to oppose the then military dictator, General Ayub Khan. And since then, all major political uh, uh, leaders from Zulfkarli Bhutto, Bacha Khan, Benazir Bhutto, Nawaz Sharif, uh, Baloch leaders, Sindhi leaders, uh, of course, uh, leaders from former East Pakistan, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, uh, Molana Bashani, all of them have been called uh, raw agents. And sometimes it appears to me as if raw, the Indian intelligence, is probably the most popular political force in Pakistan because all the major leaders seem to be associated with them in the minds of the military establishment. Um, so what we've been... With, sorry, can you hear me? Yes. 
What we've been seeing since the inauguration of Imran Khan in August uh, 2018 is uh, an increased repression against media, against students, against academics, against activists. How do you think it's the case? How can you explain this? Well, uh, Imran Khan's uh, ascent to power uh, was very much guided by the entrenched establishment. And, uh, um, you know, for a very long time, Imran Khan was a critic of this very establishment. He spoke very openly against the policy of enforced disappearances. He spoke very openly about uh, the drone strikes against the military operations. So he was he established himself as an anti-establishment figure um, around 2008, 2009, 2010. But after 2012, 2013, when, when it became clear that it would be very difficult for him to dislodge the by the end of it, a mouthpiece of their worldview. And by 2015-16, he was calling all political parties and their leaders as Indian agents, as traitors. Uh, he was praising uh, the military constantly. And it became very clear in 2016-2017, in, in a year or two before the 2018 general elections, that the intelligence agencies are supporting Imran Khan's ascent because more and more uh, members of mainstream parties started joining Imran Khan's party and more and more politicians started complaining that they're being pressured by the intelligence apparatus to join Imran Khan. Similarly, all those who were all those uh, journalists who were critical of uh, both the establishment and of Imran Khan uh, started facing the music from, the, from uh, the state. And it's very interesting that Imran Khan at this point was an opposition leader but the judiciary uh, and the establishment, by, and by the establishment we mean the military and the intelligence, were very much backing him. And, uh, uh, you know, this one uh, news channel, Geo News, was um, forced to shut down for months for, for its opposition to Imran Khan. Um, and uh, again, slowly this, this whole tendency, uh, this silent, creeping martial law, uh, started uh, affecting uh, universities as well, because these are places where ideas are discussed. And by 2017, 2018, a number of uh, academics were fired from their universities. So his whole uh, ascent to power was in a very, in very much a manufactured ascent. And uh, then we had the July 2018 elections, before which uh, 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 the opposition, the, the part, the ruling party, the PMLN was not allowed to campaign properly. Their leaders were put in jail. Uh, many people were forced to switch loyalties at the last minute. And hence, Imran Khan was able to get this uh, so-called mandate. And right after his election, he was immediately referred to um, as a selected prime minister, not an elected prime minister. Yeah. And later, he was called a puppet prime minister. And the puppet uh, has to, of course, follow whatever the puppeteers want. And the last few years, we've seen this uh, discourse that Pakistan is in the midst of a fifth generation war, by which they mean this war, which is trying to uh, trying to um, influence the minds of young people, trying to disorient them, make them disloyal. And this narrative 
naturally fits very well with uh, the security paradigm. And anybody who's dissenting, anybody who is disagreeing with the status quo is automatically seen as a warrior of fifth generation war. I mean, I was called a commander of the fifth generation war, and I, I didn't even know that. I ca- kind of like the idea of being a commander, but <laughs> uh, I, I'm not that cool, actually. So, I mean, I, so, so what they've done is they've turned universities into battlegrounds, not battlegrounds of ideas, but actual like a war zone. And that means that when you when you place different institutions under the logic of war, then you don't have an engagement or disagreement or debate. You have friends and enemies and you have to protect your friends and you have to eliminate your enemies. And this militarized logic of control is dominating all spheres of life in Pakistan under Imran Khan, uh, precisely because he has succumbed to this uh, uh, nauseating theory of fifth generation war, of, secu- of, of dissent being, being sedition, of, uh, of uh, political opponents being enemies. And that is why we're seeing this increasing repression in contemporary Pakistan. So speaking of this, uh, of the, the the fiction of all opponents as enemies, uh, you, what we can see is that, um, I mean, for all the real or uh, made up uh, differences between India and Pakistan, there is a common, very generous distribution of uh, sedition charges and uh, systematic criminalization of dissent. Um, you've been very critical in the past of the, the, the seditious laws, which are in fact rooted in the Raj and our colonial inheritance. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Uh, so the sedition law was a very strange law brought by the British, whereby uh, this foreign entity uh, that was ruling over India was deciding who among Indians is loyal or disloyal to India. And uh, this this meant, of course, that anybody who was challenging the Raj, challenging the white man's rule, challenging the British, was deemed to be a seditious figure. And interestingly, all major nationalist figures in uh, colonial India at some point had a sedition charge against them. So Tilak had it, Gandhi had it, uh, Abdul Kalam Azad, Bhagat Singh. And then yeah, Jinnah was a lawyer in such cases of Tilak. Uh, so everybody, so this, this is something that, that went beyond the communal divide, the regional divide. Anybody who opposed the system was declared uh, seditious. And uh, by, the, by the 1930s, 40s, it was clear that vast majority of India is seditious and uh, the British had to leave. It is uh, absolutely horrifying that both India and Pakistan have maintained this colonial law. Uh, it is uh, it is meant to suppress the people. It was viewed in in uh, during the colonial era as the most odious of all the laws that the British had made, and its continuations means that there's a there's a continuation in terms of the logic of governance between the colonial and the post-colonial state. The post-colonial elites deemed it necessary to maintain some of the weapons uh, uh, that that the British had. They wanted to inherit these weapons 
in order to ensure that the that the mass movements or the or the demands popular demands from below could be disciplined and its increasing use over the last few years in both india and pakistan shows that there is a very real crisis emerging for both these states they're unable to respond to the needs of the public the economic needs the, you know uh, the needs of, for security for housing for health um, much of the infrastructure has collapsed much of the ideological basis for both india and pakistan has collapsed new movements are emerging and today both india and pakistan the states do not have a language to understand what it, what do these new movements mean so it's so the sedition law is not only a symptom of the weakness of these states it's also a symptom of their inability to even comprehend the crisis that they're confronted by so they simply call them you know uh, seditious raw agents is in india it's isi agent uh, or or or, the, or ngos or you know you, this entire vocabulary made by these states against opponents and none of them none of these words are adequate in explaining what exactly is happening and i think that is where the paranoia of the state stems from i mean last year they put sedition charges uh, on students and on myself uh, for a student solidarity march which was simply demanding the restoration of student unions and and an increase in higher education budget that just shows you that it's basically it's not meant to fight any enemy or any one who's part of a conspiracy it's meant against anybody who knows what their rights are in 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 the constitution and who's ready to fight for it that person becomes seditious because that person exceeds the framework the de facto framework established by those who are ruling us and they want us to not take the words written in the constitution seriously they want us to take the de facto rules the red lines that 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 the sovereigns have created and uh, they they want us to take those lines seriously that those frameworks seriously but i think more and more political movements are exceeding those red lines exceeding those frameworks and we're going to see more use of these draconian laws uh until and unless we're able to redefine the framework in which our societies will be governed so in your recent facebook statement that you released after on the 20th of june after you were you were fired uh, you basically say that the state is fundamentally aiming at uh, assimilation in is fearful of all uh, what you define unpredictable solidarities and unforeseen alliances where do you think this, that fear come from and what is the reason and what is the possible responses to such fear well part of the way uh, states like india and pakistan or colonial states uh, before have ruled the people is by limiting their communication with each other Uh, the state always wants a monopoly over communication always wants uh, a monopoly over uh, space as well who gets to be where uh, when 
uh, and what who talks to whom. So time, space, and relations are governed by the state, and that allows the state to 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 uh, ensure that people do not coalesce and they 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 don't come together to form a popular will, a general will. And that's true for the Pakistani state as well. Uh, they fear the fact that you know students from across uh, Pakistan will speak to each other someday. They fear that workers will speak to each other. They fear that you know Pashtuns will speak to Punjabis and Punjabis will speak to Baloch and Baloch will speak to Sindhis. They talk about they speak against the division of Pakistan, but they're the ones who keep dividing people on the basis of ethnicity. Every time anybody tries to connect with people of a person of another ethnicity. They uh, scandalize that person, criminalize that person. Uh, they know their power stems from the weakness of the people. As long as people are scared, weak, isolated, atomized, they will remain in power. The moment the people come together, form new collectives, build new solidarities, understand each other, overcome their grievances, overcome the obstacles that have um, that have prevented them from forming uh, unity. And the moment that our time, our, uh, the, the moment people people are actually able to come together, this entire infrastructure will crumble. And the rulers know it, and they have a lot to lose, so they keep ensuring that people remain divided. And that's where the battle is today. We have to bring people together, and the state will continue to try to divide us and scandalize us. But I want to go back to what you were saying earlier of turning the universities into battlegrounds, into actual war zones. That very much connects to what you're saying now, because, you know, students are advocating for this kind of unity that the state opposes. But, you know, turning universities into a battleground is actually a suicidal move in the long term because you know the ruling elites may survive for some time but where is the hope for the future of a country once you attack students mm -hmm. absolutely i mean it's uh, it's also stupid in my opinion because uh, uh, you know eventually if you suppress uh, engagement in universities then you, you're creating a bigger problem in the long run because university students are still part of the system at some level. They will try to transform the system, change the system from within using civic language, using constitutional language. But when you suppress them, when you, when you push people uh, away from any public engagement, then you are pushing all the contradictions all the anger, the rage, all, all the, the broken dreams that these people have, all the aspirations, you're pushing them underground. They don't go away. They just take a subterranean life. And once that happens, then that's, that, that subterranean rage can get triggered anytime. And then it would not follow your civil code. It will not follow your what, what you have already delegitimized uh, from the books of the constitution. It will follow its own path. It will follow, it could follow a violent path. That's what, what has happened in many countries around the world. When there's a blockage, when there's an impasse uh, of uh, popular, within popular movements, when the state refuses to negotiate and transform itself, then these movements burst out and they exceed any framework. So uh, I think it's in the long run, 
uh, the state is on a suicidal mission. And uh, this is what happened to colonial states that were not able to recognize that there's a deep contradiction at the heart of their um, uh, at the heart of their system, and unless there's an engagement with that, that system will eventually collapse because it's not sustainable. Do you think this uh, underground rage that you're mentioning, or growing, seething rage that you know moves uh, underground, is what is or may be happening to the PTM and the Baluch uh, resistance movements? Absolutely. Um, they've uh, what what I mean. Balochistan in particular is a very sad uh, example because there were a lot of uh, really really bright young people who were talking about uh, change and were talking about uh, access to resources. Balochistan is a uh, mineral rich uh, province that has never gotten its due share. So there were all these movements and and really bright young people, educated people who wanted a better deal from the state. Many were killed, many were abducted, many were jailed, tortured, humiliated. I mean, this collective humiliation pushed a lot of young people to take up arms for a very long time. And uh, that, again, led to more deaths and more misery for people in Balochistan because that gave the state an excuse. And what's happening now with the, with the emergence of PTM in, in uh, the Pashtun lands and then uh, this new uh, movement uh, Baloch resistance around uh, justice for Brahms and student resistance. It is uh, opening up the possibility of uh, mass mobilization and peaceful mobilization uh, in order to challenge a, a violent state that understands the language of violence better, uh, but gets, gets very confused when people protest in a civil way. And I think in that sense, uh, civil disobedience it can at times be a more violent way of engaging with the state, violent in the positive sense of actually uh, pushing the state back because the state can can is very well equipped to deal with people with arms. They, they know how to delegitimize them. They know how to kill them. But when you have hundreds of Baloch women leading a long march for their abducted brothers or for uh, for a young girl who was tortured or who lost her mother recently, just uh, brunch, Mm-hmm. Or, or hundreds of thousands of Pashtuns coming out very peacefully and, and shedding this false racist narrative of them being a martial race, then the state no longer has the, the tools to, to delegitimize them, to, to fight them. Uh, and then they go back to this like hysterical response, or so they're traitors and raw and sedition. But people can see what what these movements are doing, how they're acting, what they're saying. And it's inspiring a lot of people in Pakistan and around the world. And I think that's the strength of these movements. Um, This transversal solidarity is also something that is emerging in response somehow, uh, even if quietly, to the current uh, COVID emergency. Things are not going very well on that front in Pakistan at the moment. Uh, so especially after you know the, the May 2019 um, bailout of the IMF uh, for six billion dollars for the state of Pakistan that supposedly Imran Khan had opposed throughout his uh, campaign, uh, that has created. Um, 
like as furthered uh, the the health emergency because I started uh, setting up the premises for a system of private health and insurance very much like what is happening in in the US. So this has created a, a, a kind of an upheaval in the health uh, workers who got together and protested the situation and they were also supported from, by people from different walks of lives. Can you uh, explain a little bit of what happened and how this, as, as we discussed, transversal solidarity is disorienting the state? Yes, last year um, after Pakistan signed this bailout, which is the 13th bailout, um, this was in May 2019, um, one of the um, requirements of the IMF, as always, was that Pakistan reduce its spending. And it's always the social sector where the spending is reduced. So in the education sector, there were 40% budget cuts for higher education, and Pakistan's higher education was already dismal even in the region. And in terms of uh, the health sector, they wanted uh, this, what we can call smart privatization. So they want wanted to give uh, these hospitals to these board, private board of governors, and uh, they will just determine the costs. And also, the the health workers will no longer have regular jobs. Their performance will be reviewed every year. So that's uh, that's so that those are like massive. That that was a massive restructuring in the health sector. And uh, pe people had been health workers started protesting last October. And uh, it's very bizarre that till middle of March this year, there was no discussion on health other than the privatization of healthcare. And this is when COVID has already hit Pakistan. And the only discussion is how do, do we impose IMF's uh, diktats on, on, on the health sector? Well, eventually uh, the debate shifted from privatization to the lack of PPEs. And there was a massive lack uh, in April, you know, March, April. And a lot of doctors were um, uh, were, were being uh, diagnosed with COVID. And in April, in the eastern city of, sorry, western city of Quetta, uh, doctors protested. And in one of their protests, uh, the police bait on charged them and arrested them and said they were violating social distancing rules and then locked them up in a small cell. Hmm. Uh, so it was just this, uh, this bizarre attack on doctors in the middle of a pandemic. And a week later, doctors in the Eastern city of Lahore, where I'm based, went on a hunger strike. Uh, this was unprecedented. Uh, some of the doctors went on a hunger strike for, for almost a week. Uh, because they had not received their PPEs. And we, our group, Hakuk e Khalq movement, the People's Rights Movement, and other groups showed up um, to the hunger strike camp uh, because we knew that but these people these people are fighting for us. Uh, we, need, we need health workers on, at this stage and, you know, in any stage, to, to be honest. And we need, the, we need to boost their morale. Um, this is this. If there is a war that we're fighting, it's against uh, COVID, and we are letting down our frontline warriors. 
the government was calling them lazy, blackmailers, uh, all kinds of names, um, because the government has had a tense relationship with them for the past one year uh, since the IMF accord. So, um, I think the government. So, so, so a lot of people showed up, and when I was fired recently, uh, the Young Doctors Association released a statement in in support of me. So, there's you know doctors and teachers and lawyers and students and and then Baloch and Pashtun and Punjabi people. After a very long time, are getting together, are speaking on on issues that matter to them, uh, and and in in each other, in each other's struggles, they're finding a mirror which I find very powerful because for a very long time, we've been so atomized that we've only thought about ourselves. But today people are seeing how intimately we're connected to each other. And COVID has of course uh, accelerated this feeling because we really are very, even biologically, very intimately connected to each other. And we have to care for each other. And it's in only in this a politics rooted in solidarity and care can we start building um, new kinds of alliances that can finally overcome a politics of hate and division that has marred our region for far too long. Do you see in newly found solidarity across groups the possibility of really shifting the discourse politically? It will, they, I think there's a lot of potential, uh, a lot of potential, um, but it will really depend on the strategies uh, and, and tactics and uh, plans that we make in the coming uh, days and months. So this is where politics becomes important. Like how do we judge the situation? Because the system is still very entrenched. Uh, if this government collapses, which you know now there's greater chance that this government will not uh, be able to fulfill its tenure, it's become extremely unpopular inside Pakistan then the op parties in opposition that are right now saying the right things but are themselves part of uh, this entrenched system they will cut a deal with the establishment and that's always been the case so to, to force a new uh, uh, to 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 allow a new genuine force to emerge uh, there has to be a very wide open discussion on how to move forward and um, one question is how to actually overcome suspicion within social movements. The second is how to actually uh, move not away from just those who are active right now to the general public, to actually turn it into a mass campaign. How to sustain it and most importantly, how do we respond to uh, state violence? I think all of these factors will decide whether we will be able to form um, an, a, a powerful alternative to this, to the status quo. Do you think there is an issue of language that separates the activists from the general population? I mean, Pakistan is a very polarized society also in terms of class. And how, how does this potential movement speak to all the different, or potentially speak to all the different sections of society? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, 
it's partly class. I mean, people have gone beyond there. It's a multi-class movement. There are people from, you know, the middle class, the working class who've come up over the past few years. Um, you know, Manzoor comes from a very humble background. Maharang Baloch uh, is this other rising star from Balochistan, and she comes from a very humble background. Uh, the doctors uh, here, unlike the doctors, let's say in the U.S., um, here they, the leadership comes from actually very lower middle class backgrounds. So you have people from, uh, and then you have trade unionists, who some of whom are doing some excellent work since COVID. Um, so you you have people from different classes. the The, the difficulty is uh, also partly that most that most organizations have been dismantled historically, like for the last 30, 40 years, um, all the peasant committees, the trade unions, they've been dis systematically dismantled, student unions. So this is a very disorganized society, politically speaking. Um, consider the fact that less than 1% of the workforce is unionized. I mean, that's shocking. Um, and, and then there are no student unions. They're not allowed. So 0% of students are organized in unions. Um, in such a situation, there's a lot of atomization. There's a lot of, uh, the, the, the general thrust is dispersal. People are dispersed. And that's been the whole task of, of the state in its counter-revolutionary phase to just disperse people. The challenge is how do you bring people together uh, in this, in in such a situation, I think there is a move now that of 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 bringing people together after a very long time. Uh, people are at least those who are organized. Their numbers are increasing, and they're speaking to each other. So that's where I see hope. Uh, how do how does that translate into a mass movement? Would depend again, as I said, on um, building an alternative vision, building an alternative plan that is acceptable to a large section of the activist community, but also can, can resonate with uh, the general public. And that's where debates have begun. Actually, today we're having a public webinar with multiple groups um, from across Pakistan to discuss um, the way forward. So hopefully we'll, we'll have some good news by tonight. One last question. <laughs> you know, close in this hopeful note. What is fascinating, especially in the last, uh, you know, few months is to see that at the forefront of a lot of these initiatives are really young people. Mm -hmm. I mean, Arang is what, 23, 24? I mean, they're very young and they're very, very motivated. And, and what is incredible is that their descent is deeply rooted in the value of the constitution. So I want to somehow close on a hopeful note where we started. Can the constitution really be the um, un un uh, unifying point uh, once again, as it was originally meant to be? I think I think that, that that's very much true. It's happening all over the world that you know the the movements are resisting tyrants um, by invoking the values enshrined in the constitution. And uh, we're doing it here, uh, even in India, it's the constitution that's a weapon for a lot of uh, activists. 
uh, it's the same in the U.S. to a certain extent and other parts. So, you know, what we're witnessing with the current uh, reactionary rulers is that they are erasing the rights that were guaranteed in the Constitution. So it's really an attack on whatever little common bond that existed in societies. And uh, on the other hand, in in case we are unable to defend some of those rights or, or, or the state is unable to respond, I think the movements will very quickly go beyond the framework of the existing constitution. That does not mean that they'll become violent in, in, in the physical sense, but I think they might start uh, calling for new constitutional frameworks, for new, for, for new guarantees, uh, for, for new legal, political, social, economic arrangement, like it's happened in Chile. Uh, you know, Chile is a good example where the movement started as, 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 uh, as, as, as a movement that was invoking the constitution and eventually it uh, made the demand for a new constitution, a new constituent assembly. This was last year. And I think that's something that we should learn from constitution. Eventually, it's the will of the people that must be sovereign. That is the principle in this constitution or in any other constitution. And if 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 the constitution becomes hollowed out, if it becomes vacuous, if it's being if if it's not being taken seriously by anyone, then the will of the people will impose a new constitution that will have new new set of guarantees. Uh, for us right now, the big challenge is to hold on to the principles uh, of, of our constitution, but also broadly of the mass movements of the past, uh, which are rooted in, 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 in notions of humanity, solidarity, uh, notions of peace and justice, and through them build a new popular will. And once that new popular will is built, then we will have the basis for a more cohesive, just, and peaceful society, whether they want this constitution or a new one, uh, will be up to up, up to the popular will to decide. But, uh, but I think our task for now is to, to hold on to certain principles, even if the state keeps violating its own written principles. Amar, thank you so much. Uh, I think all we can do is to wish to, to show all our solidarity for for your movement and wish you all the best and thank you so so much for having shared your thoughts and your ideas with us thank you very kind of you